So what happened, and uh, the day after that, he said, Charles, I want you to, uh, I'm going to pick you up in a car. He had an old pack of car, mm -hmm. and it was about 1945. And I want you, I'm going to bring you to the uh, me, train station on 5th Street. So he said, we picked me up. I said, no, what do you want me? I said, by myself. He said, yeah, by yourself. I'm going to bring you there, you know. I'm mm -hmm. young and green and everything. And so what happened was, um, he said, listen to that train. Listen to that train pull off. And the train went, he said, Charles, what kind of notes are those? I said, those are eight notes. He mm -hmm. said, that's the kind of, next time we have a rehearsal, that's the kind of notes I want you to play behind me. And, uh, and mostly all Richard tuned, not, you know, right. it, it was a good guy, let me, yeah. and uh, uh, Jenny, 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 and won't you come up? But I'm playing on my sock symbol. And I'm playing on with my snare drum, but I'm beating on that snare drum. Tip, tip, tip. And millions of dr uh, drummers are playing that beat today, but they don't know where it originated from. Right, right. That beat was originated uh, 1953 on 5th Street in Macon, Georgia. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 25 Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 25. It's still January 6th, 1969. The Beatles have had a fairly unproductive morning, followed by a trip around the various sound stages and the dubbing theatre on the Twickenham lot. In episode 24, we listened in on the discussion that follows that trip. I'll do my usual summary of that episode shortly, but first, another book recommendation. Peter Doggett's You Never Give Me Your Money, subtitled The Battle for the Soul of the Beatles. Essential reading for anyone who wants to understand the condition of the Beatles' finances and their ill-advised business ventures. The Nagra tapes haven't captured much in the way of business discussions so far. But undoubtedly they did occur over this period, so check this book out for an insight into what else is happening in the Beatles' world at this time. 
Last episode, we joined the Beatles and key members of their team discussing what their proposed stage show should look like. Yoko's voice is dominant in the group, which consists of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, George Martin, Michael Lindsay Hogg and Dennis O'Dell, amongst others. John is silent throughout. Ringo says one sentence. George is engaged only intermittently, so the main conversation is between Yoko, Paul, George Martin, Michael and Dennis. Two other voices are heard on the tape, one a Cockney, the other Liverpudlian. These have been suggested to be Glyn Johnson and Neil Aspinall, although to my ears it sounds like neither. Their contribution is minimal at this point, so I haven't driven myself too crazy for once trying to establish who they are. They don't really do much to affect the discussion. It's not known what was discussed before the tape was switched on, but what we can ascertain from the subsequent recording is that the dubbing theatre, which seemed to be the favourite alternative venue for the live show, has turned out to be unsuitable to their purposes. We also can presume that Yoko has been pushed forward, perhaps by John, to offer her opinions on how a televised live show can be presented as a form of performance art. Amongst Yoko's suggestions are playing in the open air for the gods or playing to an audience of 20,000 empty chairs. Paul is actually supportive of her ideas and to an extent dismissive of Michael's vision, which is the opposite of Yoko's a romantic location and a very distinct kind of audience. George Martin counters Yoko's ideas as being impractical and defeating the point of a live show. He does still favour the dubbing theatre. George and Dennis are the practical, rational adults in the room. They are less interested in the concept of what the Beatles are doing and more concerned with the logistics of how they'll do it. The tape runs out before any conclusion is reached, but it's reasonable to assume that nothing was decided. The behaviour of the four Beatles immediately after the discussion is to return to more formless jamming and covers of old favourites. Paul sits behind Ringo's drum kit and begins beating out a pattern, eventually joined by George, still using the wah-wah pedal for everything. Then John plugs into his amp that he'd exchanged earlier, but the sound has deteriorated since this morning. The jam evolves out of the opening chords to Hear Me Lord, which once again, John and Paul are ignoring. As this winds down, George runs through a version of Tracks of My Tears, not yet a hit for Smokey Robinson. The mics aren't yet switched on, so it's hard to hear vocals. Ringo is relegated to tambourine now, Paul is using his drums, but he plays along enthusiastically enough. John then starts Dizzy Miss Lizzie. Once again, vocals are inaudible, but we do get an interesting precursor of the song The End from Abbey Road. As John and George trade guitar licks, Paul plays a kind of drum solo, banging out quarter notes on the bass drum and punctuating it with patterns on the tom-toms. Very much what Ringo will do in the end later this year. It suggests the way Ringo's solo was played on Abbey Road was very much Paul's idea. Next, John plays the riff to Money, That's What I Want. By now, John's amplifier has got noticeably more distorted, not unlike the sound he used on his first solo album, Plastic Ono Band. As Paul leaves the drums, John gives a solo rendition of Fools Like Me, eventually joined by his bandmates. I didn't go into detail about this song last episode, so here is a little explanation of its origins. 
Released in 1958 as the B-side of Jerry Lee Lewis's more well-known High School Confidential, it is yet another example of how the early Beatles devoured each new record release looking for distinctive songs to cover. In its own right, Fools Like Me was a minor hit, reaching number 30 in the Cashbox Country chart. John remained fond of the song and will be filmed performing a version with Yoko in 1972. As John concludes this performance, the vocal mics are finally turned on. His performance of a country tune inspires John to continue with Carl Perkins' similar-sounding Sure to Fall. Paul and John harmonised much like they did in their audition for Decca Records seven years earlier. George then carries on the Carl Perkins theme by singing the rockabilly guitarist tune Right String Wrong Yo-Yo. The rest of the Beatles play along competently until the tape runs out. This is where we left them last time. What now follows is in itself a fascinating document. The Beatles have worked on John's song Don't Let Me Down on the 2nd and the 3rd of January. What we're about to witness is how the band dissect the composition and work on individual sections, building and arrangement. Many elements that appear in the finished recording will be developed during this session. It is productive, but at the same time, it tries everyone's patience. What is noticeable is that despite the apparent silence during the discussion of the live show, John is very engaged and active throughout this next section of tape. Even when edited down, the rehearsals still last a quite gruelling hour and a bit. I've made a decision to present the evolution of this song's arrangement as a two-parter. The Beatles, driven largely by Paul, are focused on an extremely fine level of detail throughout. Ultimately, the laborious process reaps Ultimately, the laborious process reaps rewards, but the time taken and the concentration required to finish one song must make them question whether they have enough time to be ready for the live show. We rejoin them midway through a performance of Don't Let Me Down. The Beatles are finally rehearsing Don't Let Me Down. An unknown amount of time has passed. Don't let me down. John is in fine voice. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Don't let me At the moment, they seem to be ending the song with the solo from John. John calls for Mal, but he's told by Glyn that he's not here at the moment. He makes a comment about his amp that it might blow up. It sounds like he wants to change it back after exchanging it before lunch.
An insight into how the Beatles arrange songs here. John has singled out the part he thinks is the weakest for them to work on. as a suggestion of a counter melody. John soloing again. George offering a few fills in between the vocal lines. Yeah, it's really like that's where the piano would come in. John singing through with his guitar turned down. Then it suddenly turns on, but it's horribly distorted. turning to George to harmonise. His thoughts are, the lyrics can be corny because John's are already corny. Something like the words like, love for the first time in my life, so don't, love for the first time in my life, so don't you let it get away. Uh, it lasts forever and a day. Uh, no. You can hear here that George has lost his lyric sheets with the special chord symbols on them that he was talking about Friday. But see that's that's the thing that will make it not corny if we sing different words. So he's I'm in love for the first time in well, okay, but roughly. 
Okay, well, we'll do that. That comes later. So, uh, just sing it straight first, and then we know. And then you sing one underneath, which probably moves. George sings a third melody as well, which sounds cluttered. John thinks it could sound like the Drifters and suggests playing in a Latin style. upon an idea of playing a descending scale as a bass line though he calls it your old scale I'm not sure who he's referring to George still singing a different counter melody to Paul, which could actually have been interesting. Yeah. 
George and Paul achieving a quite skillful trick of playing a descending line and still singing their counter melodies. suggesting harmony to George but then for once entertaining one of George's ideas to sing different counter melodies at the same time John wondering if the harmonies will sound right if they're on different mics. He mentions seeing the move on TV and not liking the sound. I'm in love for the first love for the first time. I think the word should be corny because there's no clever words in it. But okay, so try it and then we'll try and get we'll, do you do I that we movement need the, of the speakers love back in you because it's corny what you're singing. Uh, yeah. Hello. Tape cuts. John agrees with Paul that the words should be corny for this middle section. George is saying yes, but the tune doesn't have to be. We now find out that although the mics are going to tape, they aren't going through the PA. John can't hear the vocals clearly. I'm in love for the first, the first time in my life. 
George following Paul's suggestion for a harmony line. Tape cuts. This is roll 40, roll 40 wild at the moment. Just, okay, do it from the beginning. So the words we're saying, George, are uh, I'm in love for the first, love for the first, no, love for the first, the first time in my No, no, you know it's going to last. You know it's going to last. No, no, yeah, but... Um, I'm in love for the George calls to Kevin. It sounds like Kevin is taking down the lyrics in Mal's absence. Yoko is barely audible, but appears to be suggesting that George and Paul need lyrics for their parts. John explains that they'll get to that once they have the harmony. In fact, she appears to be suggesting the line, it's pretty scary, or something like that. It's pretty scary, John clowning with the lyrics, perhaps for Yoko's benefit. Eighty one, slate eighty one, sink, camera A. Paul subtly gets John to be serious.
the first time John suggests the song needs an intro. A full run through. George reverts to his original idea of a second counter melody. John forgetting the third verse, a metal block that will stick with him. They don't have an ending for the song yet. John wonders if the song needs piano, something to change the sound. He then suggests George play some bits, i.e. some guitar phrases throughout. Yeah, I suppose if you get some bits to play, it'll be nice. Like it's yeah, when, just fiddling about. Pedal, it sounds uh, good enough to follow it through, but normally when you just play it, it sounds like the same old shit. Oh, I like the same old shit if it's just clear, you know. <laughs> George says his wah wah pedal helps. John isn't convinced. Paul asks him to think of some riffs, which he does. faster version. And if somebody loved me, loved me, loved me. Still struggling with the odd meter of the intro line. This middle section, George adopts the harmony that Paul suggested. John almost does a Bob Dylan impression. This tiny section of rehearsal is included in the Let It Be film. Paul suggests going back over the middle section. See, we should, uh, yeah, it should be yeah, different beat and sort of all onto light things and symbols. He suggests a different drum pattern for Ringo. John immediately thinks of Arthur Alexander. The songs of Arthur Alexander, born May 10th, 1940, the same year as John and Ringo in Sheffield, Alabama, 
Being self-penned were a great source of inspiration for the early Lennon-McCartney partnership. Alexander's You Better Move On is perhaps his best-known song, covered as it was by the Rolling Stones, the Hollies, George Jones and Johnny Paycheck. The Beatles covered Alexander's Anna Go To Him on 1963's Please Please Me album, but also were known to perform other songs by the singer. Soldier of Love, A Shot of Rhythm and Blues and Where Have You Been? Sadly, Alexander's success was short-lived and many years in the wilderness followed, despite a number of his songs still being recorded by other artists in the 1970s. By the 80s, he had left the music business and become a bus driver. In 1990, he was inducted into the Alabama Music Hall of Fame and by 1993 had began performing again. Tragically, that same year, in June, Arthur Alexander suffered a fatal heart attack. The pattern Ringo plays is the same as on Anna Go With Him or later in my life. Yeah, I think that's what this needs this, this one. Yeah, it needs like, uh, you know, it needs, it needs things to happen. So like... They all agree the middle should be different. suggests playing it heavy and making the rest of the song lighter. John points out that they already have that contrast between the verses and the chorus. Paul now focuses on the drum pattern in the verses. Doing the chords at like a half a Maria thing. Yeah. Yes, she does. 
Paul now suggesting George play arpeggios in the verses. So, so that we can split up on the... Tape cuts. Paul now suggesting the pattern that Ringo will use in the finished version. Interesting to find out where these ideas come from. One of the most enduring aspects of rock and roll music is its driving rhythm. But listening to early 1950s recordings from rock's formative years, it's notable that the drum parts owe a great deal to jazz music. Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, recorded in 1954, is driven primarily by Marshall Little's slap bass beat. But in the background, it is supported by some distinctly jazzy cymbal work by Billy Gussack, swinging away and barely touching the bass drum or snare. Even the song widely considered to be the first rock and roll recording, Rocket 88, credited to Jackie Brenston but actually performed by Ike Turner, owed more to the shuffling rhythm of blues music than anything else. Elvis Presley's first drummer, J.D. Fontana, on his debut recording with the band Hound Dog, hits his bass drum only once at the start of each verse and after that is effectively playing a country two-step. It took a record by Little Richard to establish the true template for rock and roll drumming. 1958's Keep A Knockin' opens with drummer Charles Connor smashing into his hi-hat and snare drum with such aggression that the band have no choice but to take the excitement level even further with a frenetic performance from Richard himself. But what makes this song so influential is the 16th note rhythm referred to by Connor as the choo-choo train, a driving beat with much less swing. This was the rhythm that inspired British rock and roll drummers, not as steeped in jazz as their American counterparts. By 1961, the dance craze The Twist swept across Britain. The choo-choo drain beat evolved, this time enhanced by two strikes on the snare on beat two of the bar and only one on beat four. This is the rhythm pattern Pete Best played on the Beatles' Burt Camphart produced recordings and most of the Decker audition. Ringo too played the same rhythm on I Saw Her Standing There and Twist and Shout amongst others and well into 1963 with the With The Beatles album. But the pattern had fallen out of favour by 1964's Hard Day's Night soundtrack. But now, in the middle section of Don't Let Me Down, Paul asks Ringo to play this blast from the past, that old-fashioned twist rhythm. Perhaps he is inspired by the traditional 1950s vibe of the song. As John refers to Arthur Alexander, and later will compare the middle section to a Sam Cooke song, it is evident that Don't Let Me Down is a genre piece. As such, all the Beatles understand the cliches that John is referencing. So much so that on the Glyn Johns mix of the Get Back album, on the track Rocker slash Save the Lance Dance for Me, they intuitively, to a man, seek straight from the last line of Save the Last Dance into Don't Let Me Down with an almost telepathic unity. Such is their familiarity with the genre. 
And whilst Ringo has worked out sympathetic and completely appropriate drum parts for the choruses of the song, Paul once again is the dominant creative force, requesting not only that twist and shout rhythm for the middle section, but also the Arthur Alexander inspired verse passages, complete with tinkling cymbals. Listening to this rehearsal, it becomes apparent where many of the percussion ideas originate from. But it's a credit to Ringo that he is unfaltering in his execution of the parts. Like she do me. Yes, she do me. Yes, she does. Oh, yeah, yeah, nobody ever loved me like she do me. Yes, she does. Tape cuts. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.